I'm Brad. And I'm Alyssa. And welcome to Strange History, the podcast where we talk about, you guessed it, (laughs) strange history. (laughs) Space, the final frontier as the quote goes. And in space, there's all kinds of things that I don't have a good grasp of. Things like nebulas and black holes and stars and comets. Specifically, one comet comes to mind. Halley's Comet. Passing by the Earth every 76.1 years, it's literally like 76, but somewhat way, way too specific. Listen, I'm just doing what NASA tells me. So you talk to NASA now? Yeah. Okay. I actually have a cousin who works for NASA. I really hope she hears this. (laughs) Halley's Comet usually rides the coattails of major world events, from wars to births and deaths. Today, we will be covering William of Normandy and his invasion of England in 1066, the life and death of a famous author, how the comet got its name, and the fear of a world-ending apocalypse at the hands of a random space thing. Episode 16. Wait, who's Haley? There's a lot of speculation when the first time the comet was actually sighted. Roman philosopher and historian Pliny the Elder made notes of a comet sighted as early as 467 BC. It matched the timing, location, and brightness of history's most famous celestial body. That same year, a meteorite actually fell into a small town in the country of Thrace. It was big as a wagon load and brown, according to Pliny the Elder. But the Romans were not the only ones who noticed a comet in the sky that year. Chinese astronomers caught wind of something up there as well. Of course, the first certified appearance of the object came from around 240 BC, cataloged again by the Chinese. Halley's Comet would pass by the Earth yet again in 1066, marking major world changes. In 1066, the comet would reach its highest stage of visibility, something that was recorded on the Bayou Tapestry. That same year, again, 1066, was full of major history-shattering changes throughout the world. But perhaps the most famous event that year would be the events surrounding William the Conqueror. The comet would appear brightest in the sky on March 20th. On September 12th, William the Conqueror, Duke of Normandy, started to assemble his invasion fleet of what is estimated to be around 700 warships. This fleet was for the sole purpose of invading England. William, Duke of Normandy, descendant of the infamous Viking Rollo, was ready for a change of pace. Previously, his cousin, Edward the Confessor, had promised the throne of England to him. This, of course, meant that England's current king, Harold II, was a usurper and needed to be dealt with. Duke William managed to somehow be granted papal authority. It all ties back to Catholicism, doesn't it? (laughs) You always gotta go back to the popes. The last, like, three episodes, it's all been, like, <laughs> Catholic. No, yeah. It's, it's everywhere. Now, either way, he did manage to receive papal authority to invade England and remove its king. An idea that was actually backed by Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV. After gathering a force of around 7,000 men, William was ready for battle. He and his troops would cross the channel. On September 28th, 
William landed at Pevensey and started to raise fortifications near the town of Hastings. This invasion prompted King Harold to force his troops away from the city of York, where they recently did battle with Norman invaders at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. You ever heard of Stamford Bridge? No. Okay, so Stamford Bridge is actually one of my, like... If you say favorite bridges... It's my favorite bridge. <laughs> okay. Right behind, you know, like, the Silver Bridge. Right, right. Anyway, no, the events around Stamford Bridge are probably my favorite thing ever. Um, this Viking army was like, hey, we don't like you. And Harold Hargerson invaded England to remove our King Harold here. Right. And his army got caught by Harold. And it was estimated that this Harold, the English Harold, had a force of like 40,000 troops against like maybe two or 3,000. And one Norse warrior was like, no, I'm just going to kill everyone. And while the rest of the army was retreating, he just stood in the center of Stamford Bridge by himself and killed what is estimated to be anywhere between 40 and 300 people on his own. And the only reason he died was because someone floated underneath the bridge on a barrel and stabbed him in the balls. I don't... I don't think I have any words, honestly. It's <laughs> okay. the Berserker of Stamford Bridge. There's a whole song about him by Sabaton. Mm. Beautiful. Now, tired from already doing battle and losing a large portion of his military, this left King Harold with a solid unit of veteran soldiers. He enlisted the help of untrained soldiers, civilians, as he advanced toward Hastings. They would arrive on October 14th, and the Saxon army would find better ground almost from the start. Unfortunately, most of the army raised by King Harold was comprised of infantry. He had very few archers and no cavalry to speak of. In comparison, the army raised by William Duke of Normandy had been split between ground forces, archers, and horse-mounted cavalry units, which numbered around 2,500. William's troops in the Battle of Hastings would wear chain mail and carry shields. Even the horsemen would have this extra protection. Single and double-edged swords were common amongst the Normans, as were spears, javelins, and simple bows. Originally, it was stated that Harold commanded as many as 400,000 troops, and that's about half the population of the state of Delaware, at the Battle of Hastings. But recently, the Royal Crown Society has declared that the number was fabricated on purpose. He actually commanded only around 12,000 troops in total. English soldiers would be armed with shield and sword, but also carry the fearsome Dane axe into combat. It might be a shock to know that it was the English making shield walls at Hastings, not the Normans. They would lock their shields together to hold off frontal advances, while spearmen and archers would attack from the safety of the back lines. Combat would begin later that day, on October 14th, when Harold's army squared off against William's cavalry. It's important to understand that cavalry charges are really, really scary. Thousands of men on horses, armed to the teeth, running at you at full gallop. Deadly. But Harold's troops were the best trained infantry in the world, and the Dane Axe was very, very good at cleaving horse legs in half. Couple the weapons technology and training of the English couple the weapons technology and training of the English with the fact that they positioned themselves on top of a hill 
and you've pretty much offset the tactical advantages of a cavalry charge. The horses would need to run uphill while archers fired down on them, and the men with these large two-handed axes would sling for the necks, heads, and legs. The first few uphill assaults by the Normans were routed successfully, with the English the clear winners. Soon, rumors of the death of William had started to circulate among both groups, something that William himself eventually caught wind of. He was noted as removing his helmet and riding amongst his troops to inspire them. Uh, think King Theoden at Pelennir Fields. Whatever he did or said must have worked, and it renewed the fire in the Norman troops. They attacked relentlessly again and again and again. He, Willie, William did end up using his tactical advantages of archers and horses to wreak havoc and hell upon the English troops, something that even the best training and arm in the world could not fully defend against. Eventually, one arrow did find its mark. I can only imagine the shock bill, seeing your king catch an arrow to the breastplate, how I simply stopped moving from the sheer panic of being hit in the chest with a sharp object moving around 150 miles an hour. Imagine his attendants rushing to his side, desperate to get Harold, King of England, away from the battle to be healed and looked after. Imagine his guards, his brothers, and his cousins seeing this. And imagine Norman Knight, mounted on horseback, taking advantage of the confusion and chaos, and taking this opportunity to mow down the king, driving his sword through his stomach or his back, or even cleaving his head right from his shoulders. Scholars stated originally that Harold caught the arrow in the eye, just as a mounted knight had moved to engage him. Today, though, it is believed that it was both, yet neither. The press of battle makes it impossible to know exactly how he was killed. Maybe he did get hit in the eye and passed. Maybe he was stabbed shortly after being shot. We won't know for sure, and I won't pretend to know the answer. I'm not exactly sure the wound that killed King Harold, or those that killed his two brothers that day, as the comet shined high in the sky. But I do know that it would demoralize the English troops into full retreat. William would win the battle for secession and be crowned William I, the Conqueror, on Christmas Day, 1066. But that's not the only event that occurred while Haley's celestial body broke the heavens. Now, before we dive more into all of the events that happened in tandem with Haley's Comet, we're going to take, um, we're going to talk about the man that Haley's Comet was named after, Edmund Haley. He was born on November 8th in 1656, Scorpio King, in London, England. He attended Oxford University in 1673, and when he left three years later, he traveled to St. Helena in order to study stars in the Southern Hemisphere. He came back to England the very next year and published Catalogus Stellarum Australarium, which detailed 341 southern stars. He was awarded his Master of Arts degree from Oxford and was elected as a Fellow of the Royal Society. I don't know what any of that means. In 1682, he got married and moved to Islington. He spent most of his time doing lunar observations, and he was very interested in gravity and how it worked. He primarily focused on Kepler's laws of planetary motion. I have no idea what that was. I know nothing about space, so I looked it up. <laughs> uh, and this is what NASA has to say about Kepler's 
laws of planetary motion. Oh, the NASA, the people you're obviously in communication oh, with. Oh, yeah, we work together all the time. They're our sponsor for this episode. <laughs> NASA, if you're out there, I am being only, only kind of serious. <laughs> so these three laws describe how planetary bodies orbit the sun. They describe how planets move in elliptical orbits with the sun as a focus. Um, the second one, a planet covers the same area of space in the same amount of time, no matter where it's, it is in its orbit. And for the last and third one, a planet's orbital period is proportional to the size of its orbit, its semi-major axis. Don't ask me what any of those words mean. I was a Spanish major. In August 1684, Haley traveled to Cambridge to discuss gravity and Kepler's laws with Isaac Newton. That's when he found out that Newton had already solved the problem of gravity. However, didn't, he hadn't published anything yet. Edmund Haley is the only reason Isaac Newton published his work on gravity, because he convinced him to do so, and he paid for him to publish it. Seriously? Yes. So without the guy who named, who's named after Haley's Comet, we wouldn't have the theory of gravity we all learned about in high school. No. How cool is that? He did a lot of really weird random stuff that like you just wouldn't expect. Felt. <laughs> in 1686, he published the second part of his expedition that he did while he was in Oxford. Um, it was a paper and a chart on trade winds and monsoons. He had identified solar heating as the cause of atmospheric motions and established the relationship between barometric pressure and the height above sea level. He did a lot. He also invented the diving bell in 1690. He did so much. <laughs> invented the diving bell. Yeah. See, that's super interesting because we're going to talk about oceanography when I talk about Mark Twain. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, so him and five other people went uh, underwater in the River Thames for over an hour and a half. It was very heavy and impractical originally, but as he worked on it, they could actually be down there for about four hours at a time. Wow. Yeah. Three years after that, so 1693, he published an article on life annuities. He was just a well-rounded fellow. This featured an analysis of age at death records, which had been taken from the SLA, a Polish-German town that kept very meticulous records of when people died. And so this actually helped England and allowed them to start selling life annuities at an appropriate price based on the age of the buyer. So he was a life insurance salesman. Yeah. <laughs> Scientist, life insurance salesman, mm -hmm. inventor. Mm -hmm. He also commanded a ship. Oh, captain? Mm, kind of. He was a civilian who was given like temporary, like temporarily captain status, if that makes sense. He was a six-gun pink of the Royal Navy, the HMS Paramore. He used it to just look at more stars, uh, especially studied the conditions of terrestrial magnetism. And he did that from 1698 until 1703. He went on three different expositions, and he actually published some of his results in 1701, the general chart of the variation of the compass. Interesting. Yeah, so he was named just like a temporary captain of this thing, and then that was, that was it. He was just a regular civilian. He got to uh, captain a ship. I imagine, like, I, I can only imagine how that conversation played out. Like, him walking into the nearest naval base and being like, I want a boat so I can look at stars. And they're like, sure. Yeah, whatever, man. We know you. You're that guy who made that belt that one time. Yeah. 
So when he got off the boat and came back, he was appointed a professor of geometry at Oxford, and he received an honorary degree of doctorate in law in 1710. In 1705, he published the synopsis of Astronomia Kimitake, sure, I'm going to say that's wrong, uh, which said that he believed that comet, sighting, that the comet sightings in 1456, 1531, 1607, and 1682 were all the same comet. It appeared about every 75 to 76 years, 76.1 if you want to be specific. <laughs> He predicted correctly that it would return again in 1758, which was actually 16 years after his death, and that's when it became known as Halley's Comet, when it came back and they were like, oh, he was right. Let's name it after him. And he ended up dying in 1742. Uh, he was actually appointed as Astronomer Royal. Fancy. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, yeah. so this guy... <laughs> Did, this man did this, so much. This absolute boss bitch. <laughs> I told you, a Scorpio king. Yeah, a Scorpio king. I only aspire to be this man. Boat captain, uh, scientist, inventor. You said he had a law degree? He was. He had an honorary law degree. Okay, so he was an honorary lawyer. Mm -hmm. He was a teacher. Mm -hmm. Am I missing anything there? Did you say ship captain? Uh, maybe. <laughs> wow. This guy's accomplished more in his life than most people will in their family's line. And just an FYI, the reason I keep saying that he's a Scorpio King and why that matters to both Brad and I is because we were born one day apart and a year apart um, in November. So, yeah. Scorpio King and Queen, respectively. Now, he is the only reason that we know that some comets can and do pass through our solar system multiple times. Prior to Edmund Haley, we thought that it was just sort of, here's one comet. And then the next one was something different, something random, uh, that they weren't connected. And Halley's Comet is the first known periodic comet. Uh, if you don't know what they are, they're not shooting stars or meteors. They're only, meteors are only visible for a few seconds, but comets can be seen on and off for a couple months. And Halley's Comet is really good at being in the viewpoint of Earth for a couple months at a time. When was the last time it came through? Do we know? 1986. 1986. Okay. And I'll talk about that when okay. we get to 1986. Okay, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> and November 30th, 1835, John Marshall Clemens welcomed his son, Samuel Langhorn Clemens, into the world. The town of Florida, Missouri, very confusing, welcomed the young babe into their fold, but the Clemens family would eventually move on after losing four children there. The pain of the environment was simply too great to bear. And they relocated to Hannibal, a small port town near the Mississippi River, still located in Missouri. An avid reader would know of this town by another name, St. Petersburg. No, not, not the one in Russia the one in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. That's right, Mark Twain was born into the world the same as... That's right, Mark Twain was born into this world as Halley's Comet passed the Earth. The famous writer got his pen name in a really interesting way too. Before he was a distinguished writer, Mark Twain had another super fun career. He was a steamboat captain. Now the Mississippi River is known for changing depths constantly. 
It's hard to navigate a full-size boat there back in the olden days. And as a result of this, a special job on steamboats was called depth sounding. Someone's entire job was to measure the depth of the river to ascertain if it was deep enough for river travel. If it was, he would shout, Deep Six! But this is pre-Antebellum South. People are way more sophisticated. Old English was preferred. The cry in question would not be Deep Six, but would be a mark of twain, or a mark of two fathoms, roughly 12 foot in depth. Dude literally named himself <laughs> after his job. After someone's job. That's like me changing my name to like McDonald's Burger Flipper. <laughs> Cook. Esquire. Yeah. You know who else was known to have used depth sounding? Alyssa. Please tell me. <laughs> William, Duke of Normandy, when his troops first landed. They needed to see if the water around the beaches were deep enough for their boats to land safely. So I can only imagine under the guy in, you know, the Colonel Sanders suit with a stick, poking around in the mud, yelling, Mark Twain! <laughs> now, Mark Twain would publish his first work, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, in 1865, prompting the Sacramento Union paper to send letters to Twain, asking him to continue writing and to send them stories about his travels around the country and abroad. While performing this job, he wrote numerous humorous, satirical articles about his travels to places like the Sandwich Islands, today that's known as Hawaii, as well as through the mid and far western portions of the United States. His first book was titled A Gilded Age, A Tale of Today, and it's the only time he would collaborate with another author. This author was simply one of his next-door neighbors. The success of Gilded Age drew him to create something new, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer that I mentioned earlier. Tom Sawyer himself was molded on Mark as a child, with traces of other in for good measure. However, his most famous work would be The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, a novel that is defined as the first great American novel, securing forever his place as a great and famous writer, a man revered the world over. In fact, another famous author, Ernest Hemingway, once said, All modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn. Talk about props, right? You know, so I have a lot of stuffed animals. Yes, I'm 25, I promise. And I have a bunny, and I don't know why I named it Huckleberry, but I did. So I have a stuffed rabbit named Huckleberry. Adorable. I've never read this at all. Really? Yeah. It's it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I think I read like bits and pieces and like you know how in school you got those big like reading books or big like books for English class? Right. And it just has a bunch of like shortened parts of different random stories. You know you know what I mean? Right. That. That you guys can't see, but I was I was shaking my head <laughs> in agreement. Now, Mark Twain would live a full life, and the learned man eventually even joked on his deathbed that he rode Halley's Comet in, and he would ride Halley's Comet out. And he did. On April 22, 1910, Mark Twain drew his last breath. At around 3 o'clock p.m., he slipped into a coma with his family gathered around him. 
Angia pectoris is a painful and horrible way to go. Reduced blood flow to the heart, a body racked with pain and discomfort, every breath more agonizing than the last. Before his coma, he had seen his daughter Clara, and in a final fit of lucidity, muttered the words, give me my glasses, before laying them down on the bedside table. As Haley's comet veered the following morning, its bright light started to dim and fade as it moved from its precipice and Mark Twain with it. He passed without pain or discomfort, and all the medication saw to that. At 6.30 p.m., Mark wrote out the comet that he wrote in on. We are left with all the haunting words the man provided us with, but my favorite stands is a question he asked his doctor days before. Why do you fight to keep me alive? Two days of life are just as good as four. People knew that the comet was going to pass by Earth um, in 1909, so they were sort of preparing for it in some pretty interesting ways. Uh, especially in 1910, as the comments, especially in 1910, as the comet was getting closer to Earth, a lot of people started freaking out, and we can really just blame this on one man, one man only, Nicolas Camille Flammarion, a French astronomer and author. What a name! <laughs> so the first news articles started to come out about the comet around September of 1909. The Weekly True Democrat out of Tallahassee wrote on September 3rd, there will be no danger of a collision with the Earth. When closest, it will be about 20 million miles away. It should be brightest next May. The Tacoma Times stated in their September 24th, 1909 issue that Halley's Comet was the evil eye of the sky. It had been cited by astronomers at Harvard University who said the comet was traveling towards Earth at a rate of several thousand miles a second. This article was my favorite to read because it called, it said that the comet didn't pose any threat to those of us on Earth, and it called it the hobo of the heavens, which I have never heard before, but that is how they chose to describe a comet, the hobo of the heavens. In February 1910, according to the Garland Globe out of Utah, Flammarion reported that the vaporous tail of Halley's Comet would envelop the Earth on May 19, 1910. He believed it would completely snuff out all life on Earth since the comet's tail is composed of cyanogen, hydrogen, and other gases. This is a direct quote that he offered the newspapers. If the Earth should pass through this tail, either the hydrogen will ignite, blasting Earth asunder in a gigantic explosion, or the comet gases will sweep aside our own atmosphere, reacting with nitrogen to form the familiar laughing gas, nitrous oxide, and suffocating all animal life in a ghastly parody of death. As you can imagine, this is when people started freaking out. Um, there were some articles who were saying that scientists didn't agree with Flammarion. They were saying that he was wrong and that we had no reason to worry. But um, other people didn't agree with that. I found this really cool article called The Panic Over Halley's Comet by Bill Stevenson, which was published um, 45 years afterwards, so in 1955. But he talked a lot about sort of the panic that ensued in 1910. So the very, so around like April and May, um, 
while Mark Twain was on his deathbed, people were freaking out. There were entire black communities in the southern part of the United States who refused to work in fields and mills. They would gather in the thousands and just sit and wait, awaiting imminent death. Native tribes in Canada held rituals in hopes to ward off the comet. And this author also reported that many Muslims claimed that this was a message from Allah. There were peasants in West China who began breaking out into anti-dynastic demonstrations. And there were field workers in Russia who just sat down and starved themselves. What the hell? This isn't even the worst of it. This, how does it get worse than people starving themselves to death? <laughs> in Aline, Oklahoma, in this is, we're in 1910 now, a local sheriff arrived just in time to a very horrific scene. Henry Heinemann, leader of a religious cult known as the Select Followers, was mere minutes away from plunging, plunging a knife into the chest of a 16-year-old girl named Jane Warfield. She had been chosen as a human sacrifice to make a blood atonement for the sins of the world. <laughs> Heinemann said that it was God's wish, which had only been revealed to just him. Without this sacrifice, the world would end, and the heavens would be rolled up like a scroll following contact with the tail of the comet, is the quote that he said. Oh my God. It gets better in New York City. <laughs> None of this is getting better. <laughs> in New York City, specifically in Little Italy, there was a local man who launched a homemade fire balloon from a rooftop right into a crowded street. When it exploded, 500 people trampled over each other trying to escape. In Winnipeg, there was an epidemic of suicides, uh, more specifically out of immigrant communities. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a local oh. woman named Clementine Dorenzio saw a dark cloud outside, so she rushed onto the streets, gathered 18 school children into her home, locked the door, and shot herself in the head. She didn't hurt the kids, right? No, she did not hurt the kids. Okay. Maybe traumatized them oh, a lot. Absolutely traumatized. But no, for some, she didn't hurt the kids. Some random lady would be like, come here, sweetie, we're going to hide in my house, and then just blow her brains out. Yep. Terrifying. In Montreal, a door had slammed shut in a building, which caused Delphine Galin to jump to her feet, scream, the comet has struck, and then she just fell to the floor, dead. Just like that. Just... Mm -hmm. Magic. <laughs> uh, many churches across the globe were saying that the comet did more for their religion than any service or any sort of religious camp that they could have ever held. There was just this huge influx of people um, flocking to religion, which makes sense, you know, in, in times of, you know, they thought it was the end of time, so obviously they're going to rush and try and find answers or at least some sort of... Yeah, I think, uh, I think we actually know what that's like today from a modern setting. So in Turkey, every single night in Istanbul, all of the citizens would go to their rooftops and pray together. This actually allowed local police to start rounding up all these like feral and rabid dogs that were like running the streets that the people of Istanbul wouldn't let the police capture. I don't know why they wouldn't let them capture these very ferocious dogs, but the police got to get rid of all these terrible dogs that I guess they needed to get rid of because people were preying on the roofs. Brad, I think you'll like this part. Ooh, I'm excited. In New York City, 
a bartender by the name Tom Sharkey discovered that uh, cyanogen gas is soluble in alcohol and plain water. He shouted, drink nothing but plain water highballs, me buckos, and you'll live to be a hundred at all of his patrons in his bar. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it worked great for business. I have absolutely no response. I don't know how to formulate a response. <laughs> um, for those of us who don't know, what is cyanogen gas? I don't know. You don't know what it is and you're talking about it? Yeah! Oh god, okay. I didn't know that was something I needed to know. I didn't know you were going to talk about... It's what the common is made out of. It's a chemical compound. It's, color it's a colorless toxic gas with a pungent odor. Is that... Is that sufficient enough for you? Oh, it also uh, cuts off oxygen intake to the central nervous system, cardiovascular system, and pulmonary systems. Cool. So that's science. <laughs> <laughs> You'll live to 100, I guess, if you already are 100. But it sounds like it's just going to kill you. No, no, no. He said that the gas was soluble in alcohol and plain water. So if you drank oh. alcohol and plain water, it wouldn't affect you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that. Okay. Okay. I'm following now. I thought. Okay. No, yeah. yeah. So he was yelling at his bar, you know, hey, drink some plain water highballs, get some water and some vodka, and you'll be good to go. You'll live forever. Listen, the comment won't affect you. Listen, I'm hoping that's true because that's all I drink is water and vodka. <laughs> like I said, good for business. Oh, absolutely good for business. I'm glad we got to learn about uh, cyanogen gas. Cyanogen gas. Uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, a bunch of people were going to grocery stores and then just refusing to pay. That there's no difference from that and the pandemic we're already facing. I know. They were refusing to pay because the world was ending. I, yeah. They're like, I'm not going to pay for this. A comment's coming. I probably took all the toilet paper, too, didn't they? Probably. <laughs> uh, this is a pretty interesting one. Uh, in Italy, a man named Luigi Sofise, again, don't speak Italian, speak Spanish, was arrested on May 18th, which was the day that the comet eventually arrived, for being a suspected a suspected member of the Black Hand. Okay. Okay. <laughs> he was questioned for hours, and he never said a word about it, and kept his mouth shut. He was like, no. He got put into a cell, eventually, and there was a daily paper, which was something he hadn't seen in weeks, for some reason. It just wasn't up to date on the news. Are you looking up what the Black Hand is? I am, yes. It's like a secret organization, wasn't it? Um, a secret military society formed in 1901 by officers in the Army of the Kingdom of Serbia gained a reputation for its involvement in the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Very yeah. interesting. Okay. You didn't know that? I did not. Yeah. You learn something new every day. Yeah. So they arrested him because obviously. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. You want to you get rid of those people. <laughs> so um, once he got put in the cell, like I said, he saw the Daily Paper for the first time in weeks. And on the very front page, of course, it was talking about Haley's Comet. He fell to his knees. He's praying and crying and screaming out. And amongst his screams, he admitted to killing his neighbor just three days earlier. Hmm. And when the police heard that, they went to investigate. And he, uh, Luigi said, he's buried in my backyard. I, I killed him. I killed him. I killed him. Like, get someone in here so I can confess my sins. Uh, it all goes back to Catholicism. He wanted a priest. 
<laughs> he wanted to do his final <laughs> confession. Um, when the police went back to his house, they um, looked in his backyard, and lo and behold, they found Patrick Cahill's body buried in the back. Patrick Hill? Patrick Cahill. Oh, so not the K. Dot Hill. No. Oh, okay. Okay. So is this podcast just going to basically turn into us doing nothing but bashing Catholicism? <laughs> we don't mean to. It just We happens. really don't mean to, but like, <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean, but y'all are causing some shit out there. So uh, at the same time, uh, like I said, May 18th, yeah, uh, as the comet was getting closer, there was sort of like a silence that fell over Earth. Everyone sort of waiting for the impending doom that they thought was coming. People were gathering in churches on the streets, and around 5 p.m. or so, the tail of Halley's Comet made contact with the Earth. And as you know, since you're listening to Strange History, absolutely nothing happened that day. Um, some cities saw nothing, others saw a flash of light, and many people actually saw the comet itself from where they were in the world. And after it passed through and sort of several weeks had passed, people realized that they were excited and paranoid for nothing. Um, it eventually had gone out of our sight mid-June, and it was pretty much all forgotten. You know what this whole thing has reminded me of, like, what? this entire time? What? 2012. 2012, yes. <laughs> That was rough. That was a horrible, horrible year. I remember 12, 12, 12, and everyone was freaking out, and the world's going to end, and we're all going to die because the Aztec calendar said so, or something, or Mayan calendar, or something like that. I remember. Ended when, in reality, they just didn't have enough room to write the rest of the years. This is my last year of uh, last year of high school. Everybody had senioritis. We all thought we were going to die. What was your last year of high school? I graduated in 2014. 2012? Yeah. Shit. I was like, you are not that much older than me. <laughs> I, graduated I, don't know, I don't know how I got confused there. It's because I've not had my coffee yet today. That's the <laughs> sole reason I'm as stupid as I am today. But yeah, it reminds me a lot of 2012. Yeah. And people saying the world's going to Oh, and Y2K. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I remember all this shit with Y2K. You, really? I do. I actually do, yes, because my grandmother thought the world was going to literally end. She thought it was the wrath of God and made my grandfather unplug the computer and the TV <laughs> and everything because the entire world was going to end because it said so in Revelations. I think my dad locked her in her bedroom. I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Haley's Comet reappeared in 1986, and this time it wasn't as exciting as it was in 1910. People, you know, knew that nothing was happening, nothing was going to happen to them. And this was after sort of we hit that big space age era, the 60s. So we had a lot of observations. We had, you know, people and things in space to look at it. So really, all we got out of uh, Haley's Comet appearing in 1986 was uh, a lot of really cool pictures. Um, Soviet probes Vega 1 and 2, the European Giotto, and the Japanese Susei and Saki Kake, again, speak Spanish, nothing else, um, got really cool images and got to observe it both from some of our like ground-based observations and some stuff in space. Uh, not a lot of people saw it. It was really hard to see. It was the farthest away it had actually been in the past like 2,000 years or something like that. So not a lot of people not a lot of people got to see it in 1986. I talked to both of my parents, they don't remember anything about it. So but yeah.
today's date is February 4th. Now, on February 4th, the Yalta Conference opened with the United States President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin meeting to plan the final and overall defeat of Nazi-occupied Germany. Rosa Parks was born today in 1913, and in 1932, the United States held its first Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. Alligators definitely not included. <laughs> you like that one? I, I, I do. Uh, George Washington was elected president of the United States of America in 1789. Unanimously. Unanimously. And to cap it all off in our list of major historical events on this special, special day, Facebook launched in our lifetime back in the year 2004. We couldn't really narrow down just one cool event to cover, so we accidentally decided to go back to the original like episodes one through three formula of the show <laughs> and just drop a lot of really cool things at you all at once. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Strange History. Join us again next time to see what exciting things we dive into. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Strange4History for all of our latest updates. We're getting pretty up there in followers, so we've been pretty excited about it. We're also going to leave a link uh, both on Facebook, Twitter, and in our description here and whatever you listen to this on uh, to a countdown that NASA has so that you can count down with us and with NASA because, you know, we're sponsored. Hashtag collaboration. (laughs) This isn't sponsored, by the way. We're kidding. Um, But they have a link to a countdown. I'll leave a link to a countdown so that you can see when Haley's Comet is going to appear in uh, another 39 years or so. Oh, wow. Yeah. I hope I'm alive. <laughs> the incredibly healthy lifestyle I live. Oh, I see yeah, to that, yeah. though. Oh, water. Oh, yeah, the lack of vegetables. <laughs> and you can follow us on things like Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon, Anchor, Google Podcast, or pretty much wherever else your ears are listening. If you're on a platform that doesn't have us yet, just hold on. We're constantly, constantly expanding. And of course, always enjoy the strange, weird things that make us, us.